The Angels are how it's supposed to work. In 1960, the girl group debuted on the charts. A year later, they were in the top 20. A year after that, their boyfriend's back was all the way at number one. Riding off the success of that big hit, the next song returned to the top 40. Then, the four-year run of hits petered out. That is a standard career arc most musicians can hope for. At least the Angels got lucky and sang a song good enough to still be remembered decades later. Especially thanks to all those Hess truck ads. The Hess truck's back and it's better than ever. For Christmas this year, the Hess truck's here. Almost any artist popular enough to chart once can usually do it again. Even the flashiest flashes in the pan tend to have at least one other low charting follow-up. Only a handful of acts scraped onto the charts and were never heard again. For example, this snarky new wave jam. Bow Wow Wow are one-hit wonders in the truest sense of the phrase. In 1982, they took their radiant cover of I Want Candy to number 62. It was the only time they graced the Hot 100 at all. They still did pretty well for themselves. Their version of I Want Candy has nine times the Spotify streams of the original. Bow Wow Wow's cover has become a perennial Halloween favorite. Yet, the tune is written by total frauds that stumbled upon a masterpiece. It's a story of literal tricks and treats. And it begins with perhaps the most influential group to never really exist. The Strange Loves are the alter egos of producers Bob Feldman, Jerry Goldstein, and Richard Gother. They were the songwriting team behind the Angels number one, My Boyfriend's Back. Coasting off that success, Feldman, Goldstein, and Gother decided to form their own band. They released music under a new name and a new everything else. At the height of the British invasion, audiences clamored for foreign acts. Feldman figured the more exotic, the more popular. He landed on a truly out there persona. The group started playing shows as Australian sheep farmers. They claimed to have been a family of experimental geneticists named Giles, Miles, and Niles Strange. It financed the musical aspirations by inventing a breed of long-haired sheep called the Gother. To further sell the backstory, the band wore shaggy wigs, dressed in zebra fur loincloths, and threw African spears. which actually hurts their case with Australians. The absurd gimmick failed to turn them into teen idols, but it did give them the opportunity to release I Want Candy. Peaking at number 11, the immortal garage rock stomper was the band's only top 20 hit. Sadly, it failed to chart in the Strange Love's so-called native country of Australia. In their quest to avoid the one-hit wonder label, the Strange Loves quickly rehashed a follow-up that wound up helping their fellow hit deficient peers. Their next single was a reworking of a minor 1964 soul song called My Girl Sloopy, built on the same backbeat as I Want Candy. They debuted the remix while opening for Dad's favorite British Invaders, the Dave Clark Five. The DC Five liked it and planned to release their own version. The Strange Loves rushed their version to market to beat Dave Clark, but they could not compete with the current chart run of I Want Candy. So, they instead gave it to their backing band, Rick and the Raiders. Rick and the Raiders changed their name to avoid confusion with the more successful Paul Revere and the Raiders. 
Weirdly, the band that dressed as soldiers of the Revolutionary War, frilly tricorn hat and all, were not the one-hit wonders. Rick and the Raiders became the McCoys and released a Strange Love's tune now called Hang On Sloopy. The number one record is easily the McCoys' biggest hit, so much so that the band now reads as one-hit wonders, probably because it is the unofficial anthem of THE Ohio State University. As a result, Hang On Soupy has more than 30 times the streams on Spotify than every other McCoy song combined. In 1974, Rick and the Raiders titular Rick, Rick Dandrew, became a sort of two-time one-hit wonder when his pretty great country-fried rave-up, Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo, hit the top 40. While he struggled to make it as a musician in his own right, Dandre has certainly stuck around. He had a hand in forming early Steely Dan. He discovered Cyndi Lauper. He plays the bonkers guitar solo on Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. He wrote Real American, Hulk Hogan's entrance theme, brother. More importantly, he produced all of Weird Al Yankovic's first six albums. That's him shorting on Eat It. Sadly, he's burned through most of that goodwill by becoming a rambling conservative conspiracy theorist even working alongside kooks like Alex Jones to peddle lines about lizardmen that run our world. But man, what a career he had. The Strange Loves had their own peculiar afterlife. After the band had their brief moment of fame, all members retreated to the sidelines. Richard Gother co-founded Sire Records. In that role, he produced the debut albums for Blondie, The Go-Go's, The Ramones, Talking Heads, and Madonna. Appropriately, by shepherding New Wave into the mainstream, Gother gave his one-hit new life. Jerry Goldstein went on to manage and write for soul giants like War, Isaac Hayes, and Sly and the Family Stone. But the Strangelove's were not done making one-hit wonders. In 1999, Goldstein discovered LFO, the short-lived rapping boy band behind the charmingly dumb number three hit, Summer Girls. The Strangelove's may have been no new kids, but they certainly paved the way for a bunch of hits. New kids on the block had a bunch of hits. Chinese food makes me sick. And I think it's fly when girls stop by for the summer. summer. Hello and welcome to Off Key. I'm Jeff Youngman and with me is that lover of the strange, Nate Youngman. This week we're going to talk about one-hit wonders. The term one-hit wonder usually refers to artists that we heard once and never again. This week we're going to highlight two artists that their short success paved the way for more enduring hits. Let's get started with my favorite city and Act One, It's a New Orleans Thing. It's the charm of the city, the crescent city in me. Forget city, New Orleans is a universe unto itself. Essentially an island nestled between the Mississippi River and Lake Pontchartrain, the city's eclectic mix of African, French, Spanish and Caribbean influences stewed for 200 years in isolation, resulting in a vibrant rhythm, style, and attitude all its own. With that came a constellation of talent, a class of geniuses and weirdos unrecognizable outside town borders. It takes a rare type of talent to translate that carefree spirit into a national hit. Occasionally it does happen, and when it does, it's magical. Perhaps no one better personifies the city's diverse cultural mix than Alan Toussaint. The hometown hero never forgot his roots. He gave away top 10 hits to local legends and workhorses, including Lee Dorsey's Working in a Coal Mine. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to step down. Chris Kenner's I Like It Like That. Oh, let me show you where it's at. The name of the place is I Like It Like That. And Dr. John's Right Place, Right Time. See, I've been in the wrong place, but it must have 
wrong song. But Toussaint's influence stretched far beyond city limits. As one of the most in-demand session players in the 1970s, Toussaint behind-the-scenes wizardry was on hundreds of projects, including blockbuster records like Wings, Venus, and Mars, the band's Last Waltz, and Boss Skaggs' Silk Degrees. He wrote the debut records for artists as diverse as Herb Alpert, The Meters, and The Pointer Sisters. Toussaint penned samples that provided the backbeat for classic cuts, including Biz Marquis' Just a Friend, Great song. Cypress Hill's Hits from the Bong, Naz's Memory Lane, Amiri's One Thing, and Gorilla's debut, Tomorrow Comes Today. Despite his diverse catalog, Toussaint never made it to number one himself. He came close. He wrote one, Glenn Campbell's Southern Nights. He produced one, LaBelle's Lady Marmalade. He was sampled in one, Santana and the product GMB's Maria Maria. And was covered in one when Christina Aguilera, Little Kim, Maya and Pink's Lady Marmalade became the ninth and so far last song to hit number one by two different artists. The closest Toussaint came to number one under his own name was with his first ever charting single, And That's Where the Weirdos Come In. Even in a city that worships eccentrics like New Orleans, Ernie Cato was in another dimension. An almost maniacal self-promoter, he always knew and proclaimed loudly that he was special. And for one week in a life of up and downs, he proved it when he had the biggest song in the country. Ernest Cador, as his name reads on the Charity Hospital birth certificate, came of age in a segregated South. The son of a Baptist minister, he built his musical chops singing gospel in church choirs. As a teenager, he performed regularly at local talent shows where he met singers like Little Richard, Sam Cooke, and James Brown. Despite Brush's world-changing talent, he had no success of his own, but that changed in 1961. In 61, Alan Toussaint was a 23-year-old nobody session player looking for his big break. It almost never happened. Ernie Cato walked into J&M Studios to record four songs Toussaint had composed, produced, and played rolling piano on. After a few unsatisfactory takes, neither of them thought much of what they recorded. They crumbled the sheet music and literally threw it in the trash. Backup singer Willie Harper fished it out of oblivion and told Cato to try it again. He did. The resulting mother-in-law changed music history. Look, I'm not going to say that mother-in-law is some kind of great leap forward. It is just a good song done well. Cato was fond of saying that there aren't but three songs that will last for eternity. Amazing Grace, The Star Spangled Better, and mother-in-law, because someone is always going to get married. True, can't argue with that. <laughs> yes, you can. You can't argue with that. <laughs> but there is a deeper, angrier meaning behind the fun. Claiming your mother-in-law was sent from down below was a pretty bold stance for 1961. In fact, Toussaint's grandmother was horrified when she first heard it. While Toussaint was unmarried when he wrote Mother-in-Law, Ernie Cato was, and he certainly related to the lyrics overbearing caricature. He lived with his mother-in-law at a time of marital turmoil, that eventually ended in divorce. Ernie's wife's mother did not help. Her name was Lucy, 
but he often called her Lucifer instead. He was a perfect voice for Toussaint's buffoonish lines. After their brief moment together, Cato's and Toussaint's careers diverged. Cato continued recording with minor regional hits like A Certain Girl, Tainted the Truth, and Later for Tomorrow. Since none of Ernie Cato's follow-ups to Mother-in-Law broke the top 40, he is a pretty clear-cut one-hit wonder. The closest Cato came to a second actual hit was Lipstick Traces, one of my favorite songs. When Cato cut Mother-in-Law, Benny Spellman happened to be in the studio. He jumped on the track and sang the bass Mother-in-Law lines. However, Spellman did not get any credit for his part. This caused a running argument between Cato and Spellman as to who was responsible for the song's success. Spellman asked Toussaint to settle it once and for all. He did by writing a shameless copy of Mother-in-Law with Spellman on lead and Cato on backup. Try to see if you hear the similarities. Don't leave me no more. Duh. Even at his most craven, Toussaint still spun his magic. While not exactly an original recording, the song gave Spellman his only moment of stardom. Peaking at 80 on the Hot 100, it was a brief success, but it has endured. Of the song's many covers, by far the most influential was an early recording by the OJs. Their 1965 version was the OJs' big break. They went on to have a long career as the prime architects of Philly Soul, the most popular strain of R&B in the pre-disco era. With that, Cato's phase as a national star was over. He felt sure that another hit would materialize, but it never did. The frustration propelled Cato into a whiskey-fueled depression. Divorced, penniless, and homeless, he lived under the interstate on Claiborne Avenue in New Orleans. The former hitmaker was left singing for spare change. Luckily, his career soon turned around. In the 1980s, Cato rebranded himself as a community radio show host. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> He hosted a radio show on WWOZ, an FM radio station that initially broadcast over Tipitina's, a music club in uptown New Orleans. Fueled by ego and alcohol, Cato took to the airwaves and raved about anything, but mostly himself. The Ernie Cato show was filled with hyperbolic promotion and memorable statements like, There have only been five great singers of rhythm and blues, Ernie Cato, James Brown, and Ernie Cato. Yeah, math, math was not his strong suit. Or, I'm leading the people of New Orleans out of bondage, just like Moses led the Hebrew children out of Egypt. The Pope couldn't do it, Martin Luther King couldn't do it, the mayor couldn't do it, but I'm going to do it. His big catchphrase was, Burn Cato Burn. Fans of the Ernie Cato show, and I was one of them, often recorded the program as it aired, spawning a cottage industry of sorts, as aficionados used pre-internet technology to mail cassette copies around the world. As a result, Cato garnered an international cult following. Even so, WWOZ canceled his show around 1987. He was getting a little out of hand back then. Cato took such rejection hard. At this critical juncture, Cato was saved by love. He found salvation in the form of an old friend, Antoinette Dorsey Fox. The two wed in 1996. He sobered up and reinvented himself once again. The entrepreneurial Fox found a vacant building on Claiborne Avenue in a neighborhood not far from where Cato had spent many nights sleeping under the overpass. The couple converted the place into the mother-in-law lounge so that Cato would always have a venue to perform in. At least once a week, he would step out from behind the bar and perform in front of a giant mural of himself. Shortly, Cato was an active member of the New Orleans community again. In 1998, he proclaimed himself the Emperor of the Universe and created a new look to celebrate his new title. It included long fingernails, curly hair, shiny suits, a gold-colored crown, or a cape reading 
Emperor Cato. He drove around in a purple ambulance with a jukebox on the side and the slogan, It's Finger Poppin' Time, painted on the front. One of Cato's most elaborate performances was at the New Orleans Aquarium of the Americas. He ended a performance at a benefit for a local group aiding people with disabilities by playing mother-in-law seven times while dancing with a shark. That I'd like to have seen. For a time, he dropped the emperor title and billed himself as Mr. Naugahyde until he was ordered to desist by the owners of the Naugahyde trademark. Cato then explained it was just a misunderstanding. He was calling himself Mr. Naugahyde, a word he invented himself. Loophole. Despite or perhaps because of his eccentricities, music fans re-embraced him. He received national honors in New York and Washington. He was inducted into the Louisiana and the New Orleans Music Halls of Fame. In 1997, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award from Louisiana Governor Mike Foster. In 2001, he rode as the king of the annual Mardi Gras parade of the Crew of Devoe. Five months later, he was dead. The last day he ever lived was the 4th of July, a fitting departure for a true American original. After he laid in state at Gallier Hall, he was interred in St. Louis Cemetery. He now rests alongside fellow New Orleans legend Earl King, the songwriter behind the Mardi Gras staple Big Chief, and of course, his real mother-in-law. However, not even death could defeat Cato. Shortly after he died, Antoinette commissioned a fully costumed look-alike mannequin of the singer fitted with a playback system that blasted out his old hits. She would unscrew its arms to allow for a regular manicure. On one occasion, she even took the statue to Galatoire's, an upscale New Orleans restaurant. The mannequin became a New Orleans celebrity in its own right. Cato's most impressive posthumous achievement was running for office. Rolled around in a wheelchair, the mannequin campaigned door-to-door on the platform that he was no more brainless than any other politician. Which was probably true. Antoinette even sold Vote Cato Vote t-shirts out of the back of the campaign car, logically a hearse. In its broad outlines, Cato's story parallels that of his beloved beleaguered city. He rose, fell, and rose again, weathering storms and lingering long after most considered him down and for the count. In the end, he literally rose from the dead. Cato might have had limited success, but he stretched it out for a lifetime, and then some. If she leave us alone, we would have a happy home. From down below. You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. Oh, that Ernie Cato. You gotta love him. You do. The world keys more scamps like him. Now it's time for my act, Act 2, Soldier of Fortune. But before we dive in, I think it's time to define a one-hit wonder. It is not just an artist best known for one song. That definition has trapped many artists that now read as one-hit wonder, but should not really qualify. Perhaps no artist straddles to survive better than the poor soul who made this song. Ha, dummy, you just got Rickrolled. <laughs> in 2007, Rick Rowling took over the internet. Conceived on that Nazi high 4chan, the meme was as dumb as it was simple. A sucker would click on a link under pretext that it was for something interesting, only to be spammed with the music video for Rick Yatsley's 1988 hit, Never Gonna Give You Up. There was no grander joke. Rick Rowling could have used any dated pop relic to annoy the listener, but they chose Rick Yatsley. It was a blessing and a curse. The quirky phenomenon returned Atsley to the spotlight while simultaneously reducing his career to one song. Atsley should be remembered as a legitimate star, but he's not. We gave him up. Between 1987 and 1990, he scored three top ten hits, including a second number one. But his catalog has been consumed by the one track. 
Never gonna give you up so towers over the rest of his au revoir that it has almost four times the streams of his next ten songs combined. This gulf between past and present success has caused multiple publications to label him a one-hit wonder. Ashley is not unique in this. Many chart successes have one song that overshadows the rest of their career and cultural memory. While I am a chart absolutist, one top 40 hit, that's it, most people define one-hit wonders based on the songs they remember more than the songs they forgot. That holds true for the one-hit wonder directly inspired by Rick Rowling. I would not classify him as a one-hit wonder, but I'll leave that up to you. Or should I say, you? Soldier Boy Tell. Like Rick Astley, Soldier Boy's legacy has been subsumed into a flashy meme. He had five top 40 hits, including another top 10. Yet his legacy will always be cranked out. Even an authority as academic as the Encyclopedia Britannica calls him a one hit wonder. But perhaps Soldier Boy should be happy that is all people remember, because everything he's done since would ruin that legacy. In June of 2006, 15-year-old DeAndre Cortez Way thought it was time to write his memoir. His typo-written biography on Wikipedia described his Atlanta roots, his life attending Parks Middle School, and a burgeoning musical career. The bloggish and blunt paragraph lacked much insight into the mind behind the song he was eagerly promoting, Doo-Doo Head. The article for the song about poop concludes with the line, As of now, Soldier Boy is sure to be the next big thing. Amazingly, he was kind of right. An early and prolific poster, he splattered his music across the web just to see what stuck. He flooded in there with amateurs URLs full of Comic Sans graphics. One of those URLs did catch on, SoldierBoyTellEm.com which became the title of his debut album and arguably greatest scam. In 2007, Soldier Boy realized the viral potential of Rick Rowling. He could force millions to listen to his voice instead of a cheesy 80s doofus. He purposely mislabeled his song, Crank That, to peer-to-peer websites with the names of then-popular hits. Millions of users unintentionally downloaded his track instead. The public loved the bait-and-switch. By May, Crank That had warmed its way from playlists to airwaves. It eventually sold 3 million digital copies. In the process, it beat the 2 million record benchmark set by Daniel Powder's Bad Day. Hey, hey, that's my song, man. <laughs> Powder, it should be noted, is a rare, pure one-hit wonder. In 2006, he had the best-selling song of the year and never appeared on the Hot 100 again. Yet. Yeah. Soldier Boy would not do the same. I cannot in good conscience say that Crank That is a quality song. It is almost a stretch to call it a song. It is a catchphrase repeated for four minutes. It has the artistic merit of one of those Bazinga t-shirts. As much as I think the song sucks, I can't get that mad at Soldier Boy. The man behind one of the stupidest number ones of all time was truly prophetic. He was an early adopter of two of the most consequential technological advancements of the decade. SoldierBoyTellEm.com was the first charting album exclusively produced on Fruity Loops, the production software behind a slew of later rap and EDM hits. God's plan. God's plan. All my brothers got that gas and they always be smoking like a rock star. Is that a discovery is arguably more important. Uploaded just three months after its launch, Crank That was the first music video ever played on YouTube. This charming con proved the potential for social media's Wild West mentality. While Rick Astley was merely a lucky bystander of the internet's peculiar sensibilities, Soldier Boy directed it. 
Soldier Boy later became a self-mythologizer as grandiose as Ernie Cato, but can you really blame him? He saw the future. Sadly, little remains of Soldier Boy's early digital exploits. Interscope Records bought up the Soldier Boy Telem URL. His MySpace page now links to a shirtless Brazilian guy named Douglas. His Facebook is plastered with spam for penis enhancement pills. And his subreddit is almost exclusively posts about King DDDD, the villainous hammer-wielding penguin from the Kirby franchise. His musical career has literally been erased. So, he pivoted. Now he's a con man. Over the past 12 years, the rapper has led a series of grifts and business ventures so brazenly fraudulent it's hard to trace them all. From fashion to gaming to gambling, Soldier Boy's business strategy was a lot like his musical approach. Try everything you can until something works. Nothing has yet. All soldier scams work the same way. He buys cheap knockoffs of popular products and sells them at a great markup. In trademark law, this is called piracy, which means technically a pirate has had number one hit. I thought the only pirate number one artist was R. Kelly. Some of these poorly thought out cons include a sneaker line, soldier hookah pins, and the official Soldier Boy app, where fans can chat, game, and stream any new music he made. Surely, I don't need to tell you that. Can't leave home without it. My favorite enterprise is by far the sandwich shop called Soldier Subway. The Soldier Subway closed after another much larger sandwich chain threatened to shut him down. As a former Subway artisan that sold the tuna salad, I don't know when the company decided to care about quality control. Perhaps his fishiest scam was a quite suspicious $400 million endorsement deal with World Poker Fund, a company only worth $9.4 million. Who knows what he's up to, especially when it comes to tech. Every time he sold electronics, the operation collapsed in spectacular fashion. In 2016, he waded into a short-lived career as a hoverboard entrepreneur. He designed the now-defunct website soldierboard.com so hastily that the page was just gibberish. The borderline legitimate company bootlegged hoverboards and slapped rival company's stickers on them. The whole operation unraveled shortly after the website launched. In a change of fate, Soldier Boy was the one swimming out of a fortune. 75% of the sales were fraudulent, and he was out of a crisp $175,000. The setback did not slow him down. I didn't think it would. Soldier followed that up with the Soldier Watch, a timepiece near identical to an Apple Watch. The store also offered a suite of Apple-adjacent products under such creative names as Soldier Pad, Soldier Pods, and the Soldier Phone. <laughs> if a sucker tried to order any of these products, they would be disappointed. The website had a bug that any purchase never shipped. After so many people poured issues, a reporter asked Soldier Boy if he would buy a Soldier Watch himself. Soldier Boy affirmed, calling it a great product. When pressed why he was wearing a gold diamond encrusted watch instead, he added that this one can tell time. <laughs> Thus implying Soldier Watches could not do that. It is not particularly surprising that Soldier Watch closed down. The real mystery is why. Soldier Boy claims a disgruntled cameraman hacked into the server and shut it down. He has refused to comment ever since. But Soldier Boy's most unethical experiment was Soldier Games. Both Soldier Game Classic and the original Soldier Game handheld resembled Nintendo handhelds. He didn't have the nerve to call his shameless Game Boy ripoff the Soldier Boy. It's right there. Ignoring the lack of creative branding, the product was still terrible. The council promised built-in chips. The manual promised to connect to any TV. And no, that's not a slur for Canadians. It was a grammatical error that Soldier never corrected. 
Instead, he copied it from a poorly translated Chinese website and made his dodgy hardware. The boldest claim was that the console already came pre-programmed with more than 3,000 games, including Pokemon, Legend of Zelda, and Super Mario World. Nintendo, one of the world's most litigious companies, lawyered up when they learned that some yokel was making a profit off a prison-worthy amount of copyright infringement. In fact, Nintendo sent officers to arrest Soldier Boy, and he countered with the perfect excuse... You can't arrest me. I'm the owner of Atari. <laughs> As the fences goes, this was pretty brilliant. First, even if he owned Atari, it would have no bearing on this case. And secondly, the actual owner of Atari quickly pointed out that Soldier Boy was not the owner, a feat possible because he knew he was not Soldier Boy. Soldier Boy games folded shortly thereafter. In all fairness, Soldier Boy completely denies any wrongdoing. But if you type in the URL now, you are redirected to the official Nintendo store. Soldier has never released a product since. I will give Soldier Boy credit, if not my credit card. He continues to innovate. He broke ground on a whole new era of scams last year with crypto. He's already been sued for an illegal pump and dump scheme for his token Rap Doge. Crypto's founder, Billy Marks, called Soldier Boy either very stupid or a terrible human being. I can say he's done too much to be stupid. <laughs> as much as he keeps bungling it, Soldier Boy's legacy still reverberates. As an A&R man, he discovered Chief Keef, Migos, and Littles, Yachty, Uzivert, and Peep. While the general public long since concluded that he was a one-hit wonder, his music continued to climb the charts. The cadence of Ariana Grande's number one hit, Seven Rings, was taken from Soldier's Flow on Pretty Boy Swag. Miss Me, one of Drake's earlier songs, interpolated an intro from Soldier Bar. Long after his heyday, Soldier released 2011's Teach Me How to Cook to little notice. The producer repackaged the beat to Soldier's protégé's Migos, who ripped it off on their song Versace. Versace, I love it, Versace, the top of my Audi. My plugger, John Gotti, he give me the dust and I know that they mighty. Versace is one of the most important songs of the decade, coining a whole new style of rapping known as Amigos Flow. Though there were important precursors like Pelican Enemy and Bone Thugs, Versace brought the triplet flow to the mainstream, leading to other artists to copy his style. I got broads in the London. Yet again, Soldier got there first. Okay, Nate, I really thought that Ernie Cato would be the most craziest uh, artist that uh, we could come up with, but um, I'm afraid that Soldier Boy beats him. Mm-hmm. I think at least Ernie was honest. Yeah, Maybe true. a little delusional, but honest. So I'm sure you have something to wrap this up with. Why, yes, I do, Dad. Now, I have always loved a one-hit wonders. It's such a strange phenomenon that they can't replicate their success. And I blame that fascination on VH1. In the early 2000s, VH1 led the world in primordial fish ooze level reality dating shows and random countdowns of Hot 100 hits. I loved them both, but I distinctly remember grinding teeth whenever I watched their countdowns. In 2002, VH1 listed the top 100 greatest one-hit wonders of all time. It should come as no surprise that 25 of those entries are not one-hit wonders. Classic VH1. 
But the biggest mistake of that list was completely ignoring the biggest one-hit wonder of all time, Tony Burroughs. Burroughs is a asterisk case. He was a member of five different groups that only charted one time. Those hits included the White Plains' Brain Dead Slice of AMG's My Baby Loves Lovin'. Edison's Lighthouse, Bubblegum Chestnut, Love Grows My Rose Mangoes. Brotherhood of Man's Treacly Hippie Protest, United We Stand. The Pipkins ragtime goof, Gimme That Ding. And the first class's smiley surf rock pastiche, Beach Baby. Beach Baby, Beach Baby, there on the sand from July to the end of September. With the four songs he recorded in 1970, Burroughs charted more top 20 hits than any artist that year. He had such a great one-year run that by 1972, a struggling schlub named Elton John asked him to sing backup on some tunes. They were Levon and Tiny Dancer. That worked out well for both of them. Burroughs' career arc was certainly quirky, but not nearly as VH1's top pick. I cannot fault VH1 for their choice for the best one-hit wonder of all time. It remains one of the biggest selling songs of all time, a runaway success that no one involved could have foreseen. Surely, to the artist's chagrin. Fangoria are not a band anyone would have expected to reach a Hot 100, let alone spend 14 weeks at the top. The gothic electro duo led by Alvido Alaska Gara and bassist keyboardist Nacho Canute are named after the popular horror magazine. Many of the pair's records played with this ghoulish imagery. They sang songs with titles like Fiesta in El Fierno, or Party in Hell, and Mi Novia es un Zombie, My Boyfriend is a Zombie. The macabre sensibilities spilled into the live shows with classic shock rock theatrics of bathing in chicken blood. They had their niche. Their fortunes changed when two veteran flamenco singers approached them to remix their newest strutting dance number named in honor of the patron saint of bullfighting. They worked around the song's straightforward story of a woman having fun dancing. Fangoria added a syncopated electronic thump and a sample of a woman's voice. A DJ in Miami sampled the Fangoria remix as the main basis for his own unauthorized version. In the summer of 1996, the unsanctioned remix was a cultural phenomenon. Fangoria never received any credit or royalties as the song started to climb the charts. While Fangoria sued for plagiarism, they lost the case. Poor Fangoria lost out on millions, all because they did not have credit on the Macarena. If they wanted to avoid their biggest failure, that was going to be nearly impossible. In case you're wondering, Los Del Rio are not true one-hit wonders. At the height of their fame, they scored one other top 40 hit. We will close with their final hit, A Macarena Christmas. Alright, thanks for listening, everybody. Adios and Feliz Navidad.
para dar la alegría y cosas buenas. Dale a tu cuerpo alegría, Macarena. ¡Eh! 